sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to the Pirate Monk Podcast with your friends, Rob and Pablito. Pablito, how are you, friend? Hola, brother. I'm doing well. It's good to be with you today. Yeah, great to be with you as well and honored to uh, to be your partner in hosting um, our next guest, uh, both Nate and Aaron. Um, uh, we're recording this, but I think, I think one of the reasons they're not able to do the bumper is They've done enough podcasts that I think they need their Screen Actors Guild um, <laughs> license. They're part of the union. Yeah, I think they're part of the union. And since when these were recorded, they were, uh, the, the actors were on strike. I think they're <laughs> actually striking or were striking while this was being done. So you and I are filling in. Did you see them on like Access Hollywood carrying oh, signs? Man, I should have dro- 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 drove over to that uh, <laughs> part of Hollywood and seen if I could <laughs> see, look to see if I could see Nate and Aaron in that line with the that's the right. signs going up and down. That's right. <laughs> all around. Hell no, we won't go. Hell no, we won't go. Um, no, all seriousness, it's great to be with you again. I, but it does bring up a question. So Southern Cal, you're a Southern California guy. Um, and I've always kind of had this image that everybody in Southern California grew up wanting to be an actor at some point, was a starving, you know, kind of a starving actor, waiter at one point in their career. Uh-huh. Is that, I've never heard you talk about it, but did, at any point in your life, did you want to become an actor? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, it, it's, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's interesting. And I don't know if it's a product of, of being, of li- living most of my life here or because I'm just dramatic anyway, but I did have a phase where I almost got mug shots and I almost went for it. Uh, part of it was, I, I, you know, sometimes I can, I've been easily influenced. And I remember I, my church, first church I went to um, before I went to Bible school and lived ironically in Oklahoma for six years for all my college, mo- most of my college years, which was a great experience. The Tulsa area always has a place in my heart. Um, but before I headed over to the Midwest, I was, um, I went to church with a, uh, a family and uh, this mom was kind of the agent and um, for her son. And he was, if you ever seen the movie uh, Homeward Bound, um, he was one of the stars of Homeward Bound. And he had, so he was like this leading role kind of kid and, uh, you know, really cool, you know, love God kind of family and grounded. It was kind of nice to see that. But she used to tell me, Paul, with, with your look and your sound and, <laughs> you would get more work than my son, but not leading role stuff, you know, like the giant man who, you know, like I am the dread pirate Robert. I take no survivors, you know, uh, I don't know that I have the same charisma that, um, Andre the giant had in princess bride, but that's one of my all time favorite roles. I loved him in that. Um, but anyway, I, I, uh, I listened to her. I thought, wow, that would be interesting. You know, but I think I was just too, been too busy on like, you know, what I probably felt as were more responsible jobs. No, no, uh, no offense to the actors and the writers out there. No, but um, that's a, that's a great question. And uh, uh, I've never wanted to be a starving actor. I've never really wanted to be a waiter. Um, I have wanted to be maybe a barista. And once in a while I hear these stories about like, yeah, like uh, some famous person used to serve 
copied a George Clooney or, you know, whatever. Yeah. 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 And um, yeah. Funny stuff. I love that. I did not know that about you. I, I wondered if Southern California, like near LA was just like this constant draw for people that grow up or, or, or not. But I, I, I thought I, I had you pegged more for a saved by the bell kind of, you know, co-star somewhere in there, um, you know, as the, one of the high school athletes possibly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, thanks. That's <laughs> not where I was, uh, where was that at at all, but you know, it's actually funny that you asked that question again, because this morning I had a buddy over here, um, before church and he, um, his, his nine-year-old son was watching YouTube, uh, or watching Netflix or whatever. And he's watching this show with a bunch of kind of there's a whole world out there that I'm not familiar of, of like goofy adults and goofy teenagers and stuff like doing, playing roles for kids. And I looked at that and I thought, I think I could do that. Should I, should I give it a whirl? I, I could be wacky and silly and, and playful and uh, they could throw pie in my face or whatever, you know, I don't really want to be a YouTuber, but if there was a role, you know, uh, you know, responsibility, <laughs> so a role that had some, whatever, what I'm, what I'm trying to say, reputation or whatever then uh anyway uh, that that was that was as fresh as this morning my friend well i will i will say this i got a chance to hear our, our first intro outro um over the holiday break and and your voice on this podcast i mean it, it, i could listen to it for hours on end it could not only your voice not only brings um brings peace and and, and pet presence to my life but also, I think it also could soothe me to bed. So I, I, uh, you need to hear that. It's a com- it's Thank a compliment, you, not a tease. That. But at the same time, I just want you to know how much I appreciate you. So you, you're saying I should transition to the to the lullaby, you know, YouTube videos. Maybe that might work with it. You know, maybe that'd be. That, hey, there's a need for that. You know, getting a good night's sleep is helpful. No, I appreciate that. I, I uh, you know, my I I have basically identical voice as my father, um, and um, you know we both have been told that we have, um, you know, a voice that could maybe be on radio and things. And so it's fun to be able to get to do this and, and, uh, you know, for more reasons than just the voice, but, um, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, uh, the listeners are in for a treat. We have an amazing guest. Um, I've read both of his books or at least two of his books. I don't know how many he's written. Um, they've been impactful to me on my journey. We are going to hear about a word that is tough to hear as spouses or former spouses or boyfriends. Um, and we're going to have a conversation around narcissism. So uh, the listeners are in for a treat and uh, we will be back with you after the recording on the Pirate Monk Podcast. You know, listening to podcasts like this one is certainly helpful to your recovery. And so are the many books that we recommend. But recovery is not something that any of us can do by independent study. None of us can recover alone. We heal in relationship. So it's crucially important for you to find a recovery community, a Samson Society group, or a Pure Desire group, or a Celebrate Recovery or other 12-step programs somewhere where you can bring your real self and say the real truth. And there's another resource that you can draw on, one that's been extremely helpful to me over the years. In those times when my recovery has plateaued, 
or when I've gotten stuck or I've started to lose ground, I've found that there's nothing like time with a highly skilled, well-trained therapist or recovery coach to get me moving again. Now, sometimes that's taken the form of a weekly counseling appointment. At other times, it's meant attending a week-long or a weekend intensive. If you're ready to take a dramatic step forward in your recovery, let me suggest LifeWorks Christian Counseling. Uh, These are good folks. The Hunters and their staff get addiction. They understand trauma, and their approach is both biblically and scientifically sound. They work with individuals and couples. They're based in Madison, Mississippi, but they can work with you anywhere remotely through Zoom. And at various times throughout the year, they also run weekend intensives for Samson guys. To learn more, go to lifeworks.ms. That's lifeworks.ms. Or give them a call at 601-790-0583. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. Our guest today is a professor of pastoral care and Christian spirituality at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan, and a senior fellow at the Newbigin House of Studies in San Francisco. Uh, He served as pastor at churches in Orlando and San Francisco and founded two church-based counseling centers. He's a licensed therapist, a spiritual director, and the author of a couple of remarkable books, actually I don't know, I've lost count of how many books he's written, uh, but one I'm particularly interested in is When Narcissism Comes to Church, Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse. Chuck DeGroat is joining us today. Welcome, Chuck. Yeah, thanks, guys. Good to be with you. Yeah. Uh, all right. That was, a, that was a good introduction. I now believe you have all the answers to Every question my soul has. Man, that's the problem with introduction. That's the problem with introductions. You should have just said, I, we, we just brought some guy on who doesn't know what he's talking about, so let's have a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, so I'm curious, first off, just how you started, why you started focusing on narcissism. Yeah. And, and I'm also curious to get your kind of definition from the trendy way that it's used where everybody's being called a narcissist if you don't like them yeah. versus what a real narcissist is that was a very yeah. narcissistic thing to say aaron uh, well it's I don't all know. It's, I, it, but the thing just gets batted around i hear the word so often it doesn't make it's it, mm-hmm. it, it it's it is steadily losing meaning so i need right. it refocused yeah that's right yeah it doesn't quite make much sense anymore but the, the first part of your question is, is uh, I came to this through my work as a pastor and as a therapist, um, and this goes mm-hmm. back to the late 90s when, and I didn't ask for this, I didn't think that this would happen, but I'm, you know, I'm sitting with couples in marriage counseling, and I'm hearing stories, and uh, particularly in the, the context that I was in, the tradition I was in, uh, uh, we're talking basically about church-sanctioned abuse at some level, you know, and, mm-hmm. and wives, um, wives... Uh, this the whole idea of submission being weaponized in a way so that wives uh, were to shut their mouths and do what they're told, right? And I was sort of watching this, didn't have any categories for it until I began to learn about the dynamics of abuse, particularly emotional abuse, you know, where there mm. aren't any visible scars. 
Um, and then, and then I began to learn a bit about the dynamics of, of narcissism and narcissistic personality disorder. And of course, I, I was a clinical mental health therapist, and, and I had some of those categories. But what, what I was finding, and this kind of connects to the second part of your question, was that there, there was this kind of typical, more grandiose narcissist, you might say, you know, the, mm-hmm. the kind of caricature that you hear talked about uh, when, even when we're talking about political leaders. But mm-hmm. I was seeing narcissism take on other different kinds of faces. And I talk about that in the book, The Nine Faces of Narcissism, because I don't think narcissism comes in one package. And if you just take the, the DSM-5 disorder definition, right? The DSM is like the, the Bible yeah, of, yeah. of psychology. Sure, right. If you just take that definition, you're going to miss some of these other faces of, of narcissism that don't look quite as grandiose. So are we talking mm-hmm. about covert narcissism here? Yeah, I mean, I think that's another face of narcissism. I, I, what I did was I, I teased the whole thing out through the lens of the Enneagram. It was something that I've been doing for 15, mm. uh, 15, almost 20 years. And, and I looked at it, at it through the lens of each and every one of the Enneagram types as a, as a way of manifesting narcissism, which is, by the way, a much longer conversation. But um, it seemed to be really helpful for folks. I'm I'm guessing oh. you're saying that if I was a narcissist as an eight, I would be a blowhard. I would be one of those. I I didn't say that. You said that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> fine. I, but I'm not hearing you disagree. So tell uh, us tell us more right. about, about. By the way, by the way, Chuck, you, you're yeah. talking Aaron's language when you talk Enneagram. Oh, is that right? You're really talking his language. So yeah, I want to sit back and watch this. That, conversation yeah, on squirm. That's okay. <laughs> we we don't need to geek out on that. We're talking narcissism, yeah, but I am yeah. I I do like this idea of connecting those. So I guess when you're talking about these faces of narcissism, are you talking about behaviors or actual personality disorders within people, or how do you differentiate? How do you navigate? Yeah, what's tough about that, and I think this, this is where I, I agree with what you said at the. The top, Nate, um, is that the language of narcissism itself has been weaponized, right? It's used way too mm-hmm. much. And yeah, um, yeah. one of the one of my reasons for writing this book was to bring some clarity to our language around this because I've been yeah. doing, I started doing uh, church planner assessments and psych assessments back in the early 2000s and um, using a test called the Milan Clinical Multiaxial Inventory. And it actually puts people on a spectrum. Most people mm-hmm. think you either have narcissism or you don't. And, mm-hmm. and the reality is, is that uh, there's this narcissistic spectrum. And so there mm-hmm. are people with slight elevations and then there are people with kind of more uh, more significant elevations that are narcissistic types. And then there are the significant elevations, which is narcissistic personality disorder. And so you might sense maybe a touch of narcissism. So, and by the way, in, in all the work that I've done over the years, most pastors uh, that I've done work with are are sort of in the nar- what I call the narcissism family of cluster B personality disorders. Doesn't mean that they're narcissistic personality disorder. Mm-hmm. It's just that most of the pastors that I work with, I mean, like how many people want to get on stage and speak on behalf of God? <laughs> yeah, that's a, exactly. That's there a unique go. calling, yeah. right? And so, yeah, um, the the kind of people who become pastors, um, and by the way, a lot of people don't like doing public speaking either are people who are comfortable getting on stage and speaking on behalf of God. And and so we do see higher rates of narcissism, not narcissistic personality disorder, right, mm-hmm, to be clear, mm-hmm, but higher mm-hmm. rates of narcissism in uh, in pastors, as we do in lawyers and actors and other other kinds of, of mm-hmm. groups too. Yeah. 
Okay, so I'm going to chip away at wrapping my head around this the best I can, and I can be slow. So what, if any, is the difference between someone just being selfish, self-absorbed, or narcissistic? Yeah. Well, uh, what's what's tricky about that is, I mean, we're all selfish to some degree, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But when we talk about narcissism, it's... um, the way I like to think about it is that there is um, sort of a, a grandiose part of that person that that takes over and and leads the charge or drives the bus or whatever metaphor that you want to use. And it's a if you think about it in terms of um, the language that like a Thomas Merton might use, the false self um, mm-hmm. or a part of oneself. Um, what we know about narcissism is that it's uh, it's it's based uh, in trauma, it's etiology, it's causes trauma, right, and pain, early life pain. And so, what ends up happening is um, narcissism is is like a compensatory strategy. It's pain mm-hmm. is you've been wounded as a child, right? Significant pain, and you've got to cope with that in in one way or another. And you learn to put on this mask of of grandiosity or this mask of the Enneagram 2's benevolent narcissism, um, or this mask of the Enneagram 3's um, sort of achiever narcissism, right? You learn to put on this mask that works for you and serves as a kind of boundary or barrier to your pain. Um, so it's a means of coping. It's a way of coping. It's a compensatory strategy. It's a mask that we wear. It's not not the deepest you. And so when people say, say you're a narcissist, that a narcissist is is no way to sort of name the the deepest part of who a person is. A person is an mm-hmm. image bearer first and foremost, right? But a, a narcissism is a way of describing a style of relating that works mm-hmm. for them, that getting them through in in the midst of their pain. Okay, that's 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 helpful. It's helpful for me to hear that uh, narcissism is not a personality type, right? But that any personality type can display narcissistic, can adopt a narcissistic uh, strategy mm-hmm. for coping, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's what where we see uh, narcissism show up in eights as much as we see it show up in nines. You know, I mean, pe- people will often say to me, uh, you know, the Enneagram nine, h- how would you ever see narcissism in a nine? You know, of course, you're going to see it in a three or an eight or a seven or something like that. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, it shows up in a unique kind of way because we're all dealing with our wounds. We're all dealing with our baggage in particular kinds of ways. And we mm-hmm. all, we all find our way to compensatory strategies to, to deal with the pain of our childhood, childhood wounds. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. H- how and why did it become uh, something that was sanctioned by the church that it became normalized or even celebrated? How, how did that happen? I, you know, I think that's a longer story, and I wish we had a church historian uh, on to talk about this, because one of the more interesting questions I've gotten over the last probably two or three years is, is this a new phenomenon, right? And mm-hmm. I think there's a case that can be made um, for shifts in church culture uh, over the last, what, 30, 40, maybe even 50 years, um, and uh, shifts toward church planting or shifts toward uh, more public personas and personalities in, in pulpits, right? I think there's a case yeah. to be made for that. But I but I think at the same time, you can take the conversation all the way back um, and um, look at, you know, the sort of the rise of Christendom and empire within the church. Look at the, mm-hmm. you know, the first several hundred years of the church and um, what one historian has called the patient ferment of the early church, where there weren't rock stars and grandiose personalities. 
And, and then, of course, the sort of the rise of Christendom and empire and, and Christians in power and what Christians did with their power and, um, mm. and, and uh, how that power worked to build this, this massive edifice that we now call Christendom or Christianity. And, the, um, and so I think it's a bigger conversation about what we do with power um, than it is a more recent conversation about church planting or social media or things like that, right? Mm, mm, mm. Okay. So, I, I mean, I'm thinking a couple things. You you brought up social media, and I I can't help but wonder because everybody gets a chance to have a platform and get overly fake vulnerable or yeah. false intimate with each other. Hmm. How how that affects it, even in how we accept those types of personalities. But I guess I I have to start with. Can you tell me some of the the subtler ways that this has come into the church and made it? unsafe for people who are being used with this grandiose mask? Yeah, it's interesting because I think 20 years ago, I I would have said uh, most of the pastors, at least in my orbit, my sort of uh, Mm -hmm. sphere of the church, my ecclesial tradition, were not vulnerable at all. Um, Mm -hmm. They're in their heads. And uh, you you guys, familiar with the work that you do, we were just beginning Mm -hmm. to talk about uh, internet pornography and mm-hmm. sexual addiction. And I, I remember going in and teaching on those kinds of things, uh, even as early as uh, probably 99, 2000, after I, you know, I was a pastor and a therapist and, you know, get a very cold room, you know, people not yeah, yeah. wanting to talk about this kind of stuff. Sure. And then things started to shift and people began talking more about their stories, their lives, their, uh, their, their backgrounds, their wounds. They began reading the literature on sexual... The, pastors began to become more honest. And what's interesting today is, interesting the language that you used, uh, Aaron, uh, we see this kind of what I call vulnerability, faux, F-A-U-X, faux vulnerability <laughs> now, where like pastors it. are more psychologically informed, thera- therapeutically informed. And mm-hmm. um, and and what, what we're seeing a lot of is, oh, I thought I could trust my pastor. I, he talked about all the important things, you know, what a good marriage, mm-hmm. healthy marriage looked like, talked about what spiritual formation, quoted Dallas Willard and Henry Nowen and uh, Eugene Peterson and all the things. And yet he was still a uh, whatever, fill in the blank and hurt me in this way. And so uh, that's that's how it's complexified in a sense, right? I mean, it's evolved. I, I often say that narcissism evolves and adapts and it uses. And, and I think that I, I think that one of the things that those of us who are therapists have to become aware of is that as much as we're talking about this phenomenon, how are we now in danger of perpetuating this with our own platforms, with our own books, you know, with our yes. own brands, with our own, you know, I've, I've got this kind of, I'm, I'm, some people call me the narcissism guy now, which I'm running from as fast as I can. I will not write mm-hmm. on this again. I <laughs> don't want that. But, um, at least but they're, we, at, le- at least they're not calling you the narcissistic guy because yeah, that would be worse. Yeah. But we look for the point is we look for gurus, right? We look for people mm-hmm. who are experts, and then we we set each other up to to be know it alls or experts in these particular areas. When the reality is is that uh, um, I, if you'd see me doing this kind of work in a counseling room, I'd stumble all over myself just like the next guy, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Are are there lines that can be drawn between looking at a marriage where, say, there's a narcissistic husband? And the the wife is is set up in many ways to keep that power dynamic yeah. perpetuated. Yeah. Are there lines between a marriage with a narcissistic partner and a pastor to a congregation? 
Yeah, you know, I think it, there's a similar psychological phenomenon going on there. Uh, there is a actually a CIA profiler, a guy named Gerald Post, fascinating guy. He's done exposés on everyone from Bill Clinton to Donald Trump, and uh, he he talks a lot about uh, the idea of of the narcissist um, being mirror hungry. In other words, the narcissist is always looking for uh, well, whether it's his wife or his congregation to reflect back to him. Um, uh, this this sense of who he wants to be in his mm-hmm. you know grandiose self, or and then there on the flip side of it, whether it's the spouse or the congregation, he talks about the ideal hungry follower, and the ideal hungry follower is uh, looking for a sense of security, looking for a sense of belonging, looking for the perfect sort of um, incarnation of a saint, you know, yeah, and yeah, and so yeah. then we elevate the uh, you know. Fill in the blank with your favorite, you know, megachurch pastor's name. We elevate, but not just that person, but it, it may be the pastor in the rural congregation of 60 people. And it's yes. like, no one has ever preached the gospel like, you know, so-and-so has. And, and so uh, they, they're ideal hungry. And this is a mutually reinforcing, reinforcing kind of phenomenon between the two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the, oh, go ahead, Nate. Yeah. Well, I was struck by uh, your correlation of, uh, narcissism with power. Uh, yeah. when we were talking about how it, uh, narcissism made its way into the church, and uh, su- the suspicion that as the gr- as the church gained power, mm-hmm. uh, the opportunity for narcissism to yeah. develop flowered. Yeah. Um, I, I grew up in a, a charismatic Pentecostal charismatic uh, stream of the American Christian Church, uh, American Evangelical Church. Where for a while, I remember in the 70s and 80s, there was a, a fad that swept through. It was called in our world the shepherding movement. Okay. Okay. And it was all about everybody has to have a shepherd. Everybody has to be under the authority of another person. Mm. Uh, and it was taken to extreme lengths. So, uh, you know, I cannot make a move. I can't make a life move. I can't make a life choice. I can't make a purchase. I can't do anything without checking with my spiritual head. Mm-hmm. And because that lined up with what we were taught about uh, lines of authority within the Christian family, yeah. again, and that got an awful lot of currency during those days, uh, there were folks who just bought in hard. It yeah. seemed safe. It seemed comfortable. Yeah. And looking back on it to see all of the devastation, the spiritual devastation yeah. that that, that came from that movement. Yeah. And, and it wasn't just, it, I think it devastated the shepherds as much as it de- designated this, uh, uh, devastated the so-called sheep. Mm-hmm. The whole system was so uh, screwed. Yeah. 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 And that some form of that, I hear stories like that every day, even today. Mm-hmm. I, I sat yeah, with yeah. someone yesterday who had a similar story. She was trying to leave a church, a, a kind of a mega church. And, uh, yeah. and, uh, and the, the kind of, she'd been a part of uh, the worship team and things like that. And, and the mm-hmm. kind of manipulation that was used to keep her within the fold, you know, the kind of out, if you leave us, this will happen to you. Uh, mm-hmm. if you leave us, uh, don't ever expect to rely on us again, leaving 10 years of relationships behind, you know, people who's, yeah. she had sat in their homes and, been mentored by these people, and uh, but they weren't freeing her to to move on, grow in ways that I think w- were important for her to grow in. And so we hear stories like this all the time, uh, and it's pretty frightening. Now, on the other side, I hear 
by the way, I need to say this because people, people often ask me, do you have any hope? And I hear mm-hmm. lots of great stories and I know really healthy pastors and really healthy churches and congregations, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, um, but there are plenty of stories like the one that you just sh- shared, Nate. So uh, just, you can flesh this out. I'm going to throw it out, flesh it out or shoot it down. It seems like the shorter path to a solution is not trying to fix all of the pastors who are narcissistic, but for the people in the pews to reclaim the power that God gave them as a part of the body of Christ. Where, Where do you go with that thought? Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of truth to that, and I think maybe it requires us to ask these questions about what we do with power um, and what we've done with power historically, and how addicted mm-hmm. to power we are. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the kinds of churches that we long to belong to, um, uh, the kinds of pastors that we're attracted to, um, and so I I think it it takes a kind of collective um, self reflection, and I'm seeing this in different pockets, by the way, as as um, uh, uh, within several groups of, of church planners that I've worked with over the last three years or so, where they're having these conversations, not just about how they train pastors, but on the expectations of congregations and the and ecclesiology and you know larger questions like that too. So I I don't think that there's a one size fits all solution, um, but I do I do think that a lot of this has to do with um, uh, with our relationship to power, and then maybe the larger question there is how addicted we are to a kind of cultural power too as american christians you know yes. and so what's the kind of a unique phenomenon of narcissism within american christianity and how is that tied to some of the larger movements that we've been seeing over the last you know seven or eight years yeah boy this is when you're saying that this feels so rough because if i was having a conversation with a parishioner about this that felt uncomfortable with the conversation or the idea, it would come back to Bible verses they have been taught by church leaders that all Mm. revolve around authority Mm -hmm. and how you are to be with those under authority. And again, a misunderstanding of submission. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And so it would feel like to even engage in this, to move towards health, would require them to betray certain things that would feel like yeah, do I still believe the Bible? Because I'm yeah. told the Bible says this. Yeah, yeah, and and the fact that we've sort of built up that edifice over um, centuries, and not just mm-hmm. over the last couple of decades, right? That's why it's not as simple to say, well, if we didn't have social media, it would be fine. I, I, I just think that that allowed, yeah. as I said, narcissism to evolve. I think that kind of the therapeutically oriented kind of version of faux neurability, faux. Um, that's just an evolution of narcissism, but I, but I do think you're right. I think that something about how we exert authority, the kinds of hierarchies we built, things like that, uh, they go way, way back, and um, and so and they require us to ask bigger questions. And I, I, what I wonder about, it's a lot harder here. Is um, I wonder about our our capacity to relinquish power to to follow the way of Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. You know, that's always a que- that's the ten thousand dollar question, right? How do we be- become more like Jesus? But not just individually, but collectively, and that that may require us to relinquish power, surrender power, in, in particular kinds of ways that we're seeing culturally we're not ready to do. In fact, what we're seeing culturally is people are are doubling down. 
mm-hmm. uh, for the sake of power, right? Mm, mm, mm. Man, the idea of authority and Jesus, the, him epitomizing his authority. All, all authority had been given to him, so he took off his robe and washed feet and said, I'm yeah. giving you the example. Yeah, that, that's different, right? Yeah, and and I yeah. just I think about, okay, does Nate have authority in my life? Well, sure. He has the right. I have given him the right to ask me questions or speak into things. That authority doesn't mean he can command my obedience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and so, man, these are such loaded words where it's like author- there's nothing wrong with authority used well and within relationship and love. Yeah. Um, but there's just a difference with commanding authority and telling me yeah. what I can and can't do. Yeah. Yeah. One empowers and one disempowers, right? Yes. And 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 it comes down to that difference between being responsible to people versus being responsible for people. Mm. That I I am delighted by loved ones who feel responsible to me because I'm a family yeah. member, because I'm a friend. Yeah. But it all starts getting twisted in our relationships with spouses, children, friends when we start thinking we can enact the changes mm. if we take or I take responsibility for their behaviors and yeah. thoughts. Yeah. By the way, I, I, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I, so I'm watching you guys, right? And this mm-hmm. is sort of beautiful symphony between the two of you. And I, I've known of, of your work, Nate, for a long, long time. And I, but I, mm. we don't know one another. And I, I didn't quite know what it would be like to be with you, you know, and I, I've been, I've done enough of these to know that, mm. People like you or me who've written books, there's a sense that, well, we get to say the most words during the podcast, you know, and we get yeah, to yeah, talk yeah, over yeah, yeah, yeah. the other person <laughs> that, and just your, your way of, of, um, the, the way that you two, uh, go about doing this mm. and, and how, how much space you create to listen mm. says something to me, right? I mean, there's simple things like that, that are really beautiful where, um, there's a lot of space for you, Aaron, to show up. And I look for things like that, frankly, in all the different spaces I'm in. That's very kind of you to say, Chuck. Thanks, Chuck. I, 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 um, I feel uh, sympathy and pain, uh, a concern for the narcissist. If, oh, the person, I, I, I hate to label anybody a narcissist, but the person yeah, who I'm with you. is in the grip of a narcissistic uh coping mechanism, right? Because it's so very often develops, uh, you know, addiction is so very often involved, Mm -hmm. right? What kind of, I'm grateful, I'm grateful for a humiliating addiction that helped me find humility. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, 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 I'm grateful for a strong wife who drew lines at Mm -hmm. one point without withdrawing her love. What are the things that we can do yeah. that are most helpful to guys who perhaps they're hearing from somebody they love and trust? Hey, you're acting in very narcissistic ways. Yeah. What What are the best things we can do to help those men and women? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, th- I think the analogy between narcissism and addiction is a really good one. And mm-hmm. a compassionate approach um, is, is important. Uh, now, the tough thing there is I realized I, I've been hurt. I was personally hurt 
in a situation where narcissism was involved and lots of folks have been hurt and we've got to do our work around that. But, mm-hmm. but I, if, if narcissism like addiction in a sense is a compensatory response an adaptive response, if, if addiction and narcissism in a sense is a way of, of living that sort of soothes or medicates the pain, um, yeah. then we can approach it not as the problem, but as, as uh, Gabor Mate says, the attempted solution to the problem. And yes. so narcissism is an attempted solution to, if I'm grandiose, if I live big and powerfully in the world, I don't have to feel like, as in the case with one pastor I worked with, I don't have to feel like that vulnerable little boy who was sexually abused when he was eight years old. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so if I take that mask off, well, then I'm vulnerable. Well, so then, you know, as we begin to do the work and he begins to sort of take that grandiose mask, well, then he's... Uh, he's moving toward a life of authenticity, which is really beautiful, but it's also scary because the only version of himself that he's known is the grandiose version of himself. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, just as the addict, maybe the only version of myself I know is the sexually addicted version of myself mm-hmm. or the, whatever mm-hmm. it is, right? So um, so I, I approached this not from a posture of opposition, which, by the way, when I was trained, it was very much like break the narcissist down. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I approach uh, I approach the work with a lot of compassion, and so and I see men, Beautiful. mostly men, um, and and they respond to that uh, because yeah. they are so fearful of being. I, I can't tell you, men twice my age, almost men with lots more experience and power, mm-hmm. have said to me, "I walked into the room and I was so scared that you would take me down and you would call me out, that you would call me an mm-hmm. abuser, and you would call me a narcissist." And really, in the end, what he's saying is, "Is I'm just a scared little boy. Will you?" Is this a safe yeah. place for me? You yeah. know, yeah. There it is. There yeah. it is. Oh, that's. Beautiful. But what have you seen gets a man to that place? And I, I appreciate you calling yeah. it a spectrum. I think that's a great way yeah. to view it. The people I've known that are pretty far on the spectrum, mm-hmm. uh, willingness is something that they would struggle yeah. to find in yeah. a conversation like that. Yeah. What What have you seen that gets uh, a narcissist uh, on that side of the spectrum to a place yeah. of willingness. Well, I think maybe you used, you used this language a bit ago, Nate. Um, a, a grand humiliation is often what mm-hmm. it takes. Um, yeah. Losing yeah. power, uh, mm-hmm. and if if they lose power, uh, there there's a fighting chance, right? Because uh, I I think as, as long as they have the sense that they can keep the pulpit, they can keep the stage. They're going to mm-hmm. fight me, right? But when they lose it all and they're under the threat of maybe losing their livelihood, their brand, their family, um, yeah. uh, that's when you, you've I've got a chance in the work that I do to kind of make my way through, um, you know, the armored up grandiose version of himself and get to that little guy inside that that said, I've, I've been desperate for someone to find me my whole life. And uh, I get to come out now, you know, I get to be known, I get to be seen. Boy. And those are the beautiful moments. Those are the moments I kind of live for in this work, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I have to expect that it's an up and down struggle because this can just become another manipulative tool for the narcissist to, to say, oh, if I make some progress here, I'll get back my platform, <laughs> which... yeah. So, well, the the good news is I and I wonder what you guys think of this in the work that you do. But I think uh, the the guys that I work with who are truly beginning to change and be transformed become a, kind of allergic to that power. Like they don't mm. want to go back there. Yeah, um, they want to go smaller. 
they want to become mm-hmm. a spiritual director and work with a few men, you know, but they're yeah. not, they're not wanting to take the stage again. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that, that must be a big indicator mm-hmm. for you. Yeah, of, mm-hmm. that's right. What they're actually working with. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And what you're describing correlates so closely with yeah. my own experience of uh, other guys, especially former pastors. Yeah. Who've, hit the wall, lost it all, or, or, or even guys who've lost big corporate jobs, uh, influential, you know, high visibility jobs, yeah. Um, yeah. and lost it all and found themselves. Yeah, yeah. And I, that's why I was excited to be with you guys, because I think from what I've read and, and you know, and mm-hmm. known guys who've been a part of Samson Societies and things like, I mean, it's this, it's this invitation to authenticity. It's this invitation away from these false selves, these masks we've worn into, yeah. into relationship. And I think, you know, connection is the answer to addiction at some level, right? Yes, um, absolutely. And so finding our way to relationship, to be seen, to be known, and just just as it is with a sex addict, so it goes with a, a narcissist. Uh, they need mm-hmm. to be seen, they need to be known. And then it just kind of dissipates. They don't need the, the armored up self anymore. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful. Well, and that that makes me think of your book, Nate. When you that always stuck with me when you talked about Jonathan and David becoming friends and what mm-hmm. that first step was with Jonathan mm-hmm. giving him weapons as a gift that he could hurt him with and taking yeah. off the armor. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I just felt like that was the most concise, brilliant way to talk about yeah. how real relationship starts. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Well, Chuck, thank you so much for making the time to yeah. talk with us today. Uh, for those of our listeners who would like to uh, uh, follow up with you, I'm yeah. sure you're a very, very busy man, but is there what's yeah. the best way for folks to uh, connect with you if there is one? Well, or, or to get a hold of your yeah. books and learn yeah. that yeah. way. Well, first of all, uh, thanks for your work because it's I think co- really complementary to the work that I've done over the years. And to, if I if I knew men were reading your work or a part of mm. you know the the gatherings and stuff like that, I knew that they were doing good work. And so, uh, um, and then it would just you know th- then it would just sort of parallel the work that I would do with them. But as as far as I go, I mean, I'm on social media in the different various spaces, right? At Chuck mm-hmm. DeGroat, um, and then uh, my books are sold. Wherever you can find books, I suppose. (laughs) All right. Wonderful. Wonderful. I'm not a good salesman. There you are. You you just, you don't have that grandiose, big uh, platform pitch. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Awesome. I sure, I sure have enjoyed this. Now you are, uh, where are you living and teaching now? Where would I ever bump into you? I transitioned from pastoral ministry in San Francisco, and we moved about 10 years ago to West Michigan, and so I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan now. If ever okay. you come to a conference, they call it okay. GR Jerusalem, Grand Rapids Jerusalem, because they've got all kinds of Christian conferences here, so you should make your way north and uh, okay. hang out sometime. All right, all right. Yeah. Uh, Very good. Well, listeners, go check out these books and these thoughts, and uh, yeah, do it. Let's see where this conversation goes. Stay tuned. We are going to be right back here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. And welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. That was 
love hearing Nate and Aaron say that. So it's kind of fun to be able to do that. <laughs> this is Pablito once again back with Rob. And what a great interview. Great having Nate and Aaron interview Chuck DeGroat and um, just a lot of different, couple different angles there. He went some different directions, but I'm just curious, Rob. I know I've, I've gotten to know a little bit about your story. I, I, I have a feeling you have a couple things to say because of all the work you've done and all the awareness you have of, of your past and things. But um, what, what's come up for you in this interview? Yeah, thanks for asking. I, you know, I, I read Chuck's book. Um, mm-hmm. I think I might have even done a book club with with some Samson guys. I don't recall if this was one or not. But, you know, I've done a lot of work uh, as part of my healing journey around emotional abuse, manipulation, you know, lying, hiding, and narcissism. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget the moment, and I can picture it to this exact even right now, I can picture it in my mind's eye where I was when my former spouse looked at me and said, I think. I think you're a narcissist mm-hmm. or some, some version of that, right? You're either a narcissist or you, you were a narcissist. But anyway, she said, I think you're a narcissist. And I, <laughs> I remember here's here, by the way, first sign that, you know, you might have a narcissistic tendency is when the shame of being called a narcissist is so great that you start crying. Cause that's what I did. Wow. That's what I did in the moment. I just melted into a pile. Like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe you would say that. That's not true. And, you know, like, like that was like the worst thing you, that was worse than calling me an addict, you know, was to call me a narcissist. But hmm. l- the long and short of it is it, it, there is the spectrum that Chuck talks about for me. I relate to, <clears throat> you know, there's the, the full blown diagnosed sociopath kind of version of narcissism. And, right. and that's a very, very, very few percentage of the population. But, um, and then the rest of us uh, live on a spectrum at all times of our lives, by the way. I mean, kids probably live high on the spectrum because mm. they're constantly needy. You know, life is around is about them and their needs. And as an addict, that's what life was for me. <laughs> I mean, I created a life that was self-protective mm. because of my shame, because of my insecurity. I did exactly what Chuck described in, in his description of narcissism and it was based out of uh, a deep rooted fear and insecurity for me that caused me to choose to bolster up to project uh, grandiosity um in many ways to protect the little kid the little kid right wow yeah and so it wasn't just this idea of selfishness i know aaron and, and nate asked about what's the difference between selfishness and and pride versus narcissism and i think there's certainly a spectrum where, where that fits in but when I was high on the spectrum, because there were seasons, long seasons, where I was high, my narcissism really created an impact of emotional abuse uh, as part of that. Hmm. And, and I would, I would say, you know, if I could add to what Chuck described and, and Aaron and Nate's question, um, it really becomes abusive when, when a narcissist or when I particularly sought to exploit the weakness. Uh, of my former spouse when I sought to deliberately create pain and then use that to win. You know, I just, there were seasons where I could tell that I was hurting my former spouse. There was parts of me that wanted to stop. There were parts of me that knew that that was punishment. And there were parts of me that were just okay with that. Uh, And, um, And just flat out, just just so you and I know, that's it's wrong. It's wrong and it's evil. And 
And, but I, but I created that. I created seasons that lasted, you know, weeks and months. Um, and there were too many moments over the period of a long marriage that that was more cases that I, on how I behaved and how I reacted than not. And so I, I was really committed to not only understanding what narcissism and the spectrum of narcissism is, but, but also how, how did I get here? Right. And how do I never go back? And so, um, so yeah, anyway, that's yeah. just a little, that's just a little touch into kind of my story and how I relate to the interview, but I'm, yeah, I'm curious, you know, as you listen to me or even as you reflect on the conversation, what, what kind of stands out for you? Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that brother. Um, I, and I, I have a follow-up question and, uh, I think cause I, w- cause, and it's also a takeaway. I loved the picture that um that he painted chuck DeGro painted about how you know he's been able to create a safe place for men who were on the narcissism um spectrum and they appreciated it they thought he was gonna you know blast them and call them out and and he used to do take that approach so i'm curious if you can you relate to that was your wife calling you out, was that a moment that was kind of a turning point or was there a safe place that was created for you or what caused you to take a, because I, I can relate definitely to, you know, I've in the past, I've, I've, I've had a really difficult relationship with criticism, even constructive, you know, because of the shame level is so high. Like, I don't want to be called out. I've got to hide that weakness. I can't, I can't let it be seen because I can't, I can't not be perfect or, or be presented as a certain image that I'm really not at that level and whatever it happens to be. And, 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 um, and I've been aware of that. And, and so it kind of feels like at some point, you know, the, the bluff has to be called by, you know, and it has to create a, be, has to, has to come from a safe place, some empathy, some understanding. So what was that for you? Oh man. Yeah. I, I mean, it was, it was a journey of unveiling for me, uh, really starting from, I think we were in year three of our healing journey together at the time. And we had yet, we had yet to identify or pick up this idea of emotional abuse. Like my, my former spouse would describe these memories, like these awful memories in which I either chose not to respond with empathy or care or concern or love. Or in some cases, I, I chose to respond with, you know, disregard or contempt. And I, I would I would reflect on those memories, just thinking to myself, wow, that was really awful. I can't believe I treated you like that. And she would describe episode after episode after episode. And I was like, wait a second. This is this is me more than, more than I remember. It's me more than I am willing to admit. And so... Long and short of it is, I thought if if emotional abuse is part of our story together, and I, I, I want to, you know, metanoia do a one eighty from who I was, I need to pick this up in a very thoughtful and intentional way. And so, it was probably year four and five that I started that journey. I ended up taking a one year uh, emotional abuse um, intensive um, class for for men and husbands. Um, and then I, I really dove into this idea of narcissism. Chris Moles, who's been a guest on this podcast, was part of that journey. Andrew Bauman, um, who we've interviewed, uh, you know, recently, and then Chuck's work. So, but you know, and I don't want to oversimplify it because at the end of the day, narcissism doesn't exist if humility 
is present. Mm. Narcissism right. doesn't exist if there's healing that is taking place from childhood right. wounds. Um, there's okay. no need to wear a mask or bolster up if, you know, if I don't feel like an insecure little boy. And so, you know, it was an unfolding, it was a journey, but it also took a tremendous amount of intention, um, a lot of self uh, awareness and in willingness to, to change and, and be different. Absolutely. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. This interview also took a, took a turn that I wanted to quickly mention towards greater relatability for me. And I know you've been with, within this journey of, uh, uh, of leaving my former church and, and I'm, I'm less than a year into a new church journey and I'm loving it. Um, I had some, some incredible encounters with the, with God today in worship. And I, I was think I was contrasting it to my former church and, and, and anyway, and Nate was, um, bringing up, he, he mentioned the shepherding movement and I've heard a little bit about that, but when he started describing it, it felt like the experience I used to have for over 20 years where I, and it wasn't extreme. I didn't have to ask my pastors what color shirt to wear that day, but I did need to ask them for permission to not be in a Sunday service, mm. um, to, to go on a trip with family. I missed out on family trips to Florida and New York and different places that because I, I, part of it was like, I just didn't want to ask. And part of it was, um, there was just this, that I was supposed to be under their authority. And, and it got to the point place where, when I finally decided after a long, responsible, prayerful process of, of leaving the church, I decided, uh, uh, they did not allow me to say goodbye. They did not allow me to have any space with people at the church, even just to announce anything. It was, uh, and and it was actually more of a, well, you know, you're not, you're missing right. God, um, right. and uh, so we can't, we can't put you in front uh, of the of the people, um, and uh, it was uh, so a lot of hurt came from that, as you can imagine, and, and as you're aware of, and uh, and and so now I'm kind of connecting that between somebody on the narcissistic spectrum, you know, and church leadership, but that connection kind of hit home. Yeah, I was thinking of you in that interview, having walked with you through that. Um, <clears throat> you know, the specific description, whether it was Chuck or Nate, I can't recall, but they were talking about allowing church members to do what's best for their own personal and spiritual growth. And I yeah. just remember, I, I don't, I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so you help, take, help kind of share with the audience. Wasn't there some version of accusation around your your maturity with this decision? you know, almost to suggest that right. you were making the wrong decision that the, and that their authority of what was mature and what wasn't mature was most important in your decision process. Right. Yeah. There's, there was over the years, a different, different disagreements. A lot of times my maturity or spirituality more specifically was, was definitely brought into question. And, and I've been part of the leadership at the, of that church for so many years that I saw people leave the church and they would point out how it was irresponsible and how it was ungodly and all these different things. So I went out of my way. I called a meeting and we had several meetings over a span of a few months where it was, this is what's on my heart. This is what I'm looking for in my life. And, and I'm not finding it in this church. And so it was not like I'm leaving. And, uh, and then after prayer and everything on the reflection and trusting the body of Christ, then I, I finally did let them know, but I knew I was doing things right. And I still was labeled as like, 
it's it's not a it's not a godly decision in part you know uh and and it it was just um yeah it was really unfortunate to say the least and and it and it uh it brought this so this interview did bring that up and i think it brought up some healing as well just to name it and you know and recognize that i'm not the only one i, I wish i was in some senses though because i i do wish the american church um you know was able that the church communities were able to be healthier and, and more freeing at times and, 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 and to, to let people experience. And I like what Aaron said, like to have more empowerment, the big key word that stood out in this discussion was power. Mm. How is power yes. handled? Is it guarded at all costs or is it given right. away? And what if we, as you know, and, and as a body of Christ, as members, recognize the power that we have. And I mean, look at our greatest example. Jesus had all this power, all this authority. And like they talked about, he puts on a yes. robe and he washes yes. feet. And he did not, and, 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 and though he's God, he did not, you know, what does Philippians talk about? He didn't think that being kind of acting like God in, a, in an authoritative way was something to be grasped. He made himself of no reputation, became a servant and died on a yes. cross. You know, what if we acted more like that as, as leaders who can either hold on to power or actually give it to people? And that's that's what comes up for me. Yeah, I, I know we're getting ready to wrap up here, but I just thank you for sharing that. I, I First of all, I'm sorry that you experienced that with your church as you were leaving. I know that was a, a tough um, a tough season for you, and I'm just sorry yeah. that you weren't freely allowed to go and, and to be loved for who you are as opposed to what they wanted you to be. And so I, I like the word power. There's there's definitely a theme when it comes to narcissism and abuse. Power over, power under, and power with, right? You know, my goal is to be power with, with my next spouse um, or my next partner. And the final thing I'd leave with the audience with is you may listen to an interview or even read a book like this from Chuck that says, oh, the narcissism in the church. And it's so easy to, to disconnect and say, well, this is about them or this is about they or that group. And right. just like we talk about in the rooms, I would challenge each of the listeners to think about what, what, is, what does narcissism mean to me? Where have I lived on the spectrum where have I chosen to be uh, bigger or puff up or be more grandiose by wearing a mask? Where have I um, deliberately created pain or taken advantage uh, of pain in somebody's life? And then finally, do I have power over or do I have power under? Or do I have power with the closest people in my life? And so it's good. good opportunity to, uh, to reflect because it it's, it's an yeah. important topic. And I would even open it up to what, how am I, how, how are my coping mechanisms affecting other people and how, and how healthy are they or are they not? Thanks for the counseling session, brother. Um, send me the bill later. I appreciate the, uh, appreciate the time. Uh, great, great, great. I hope uh, all the listeners I know will benefit from just the, the interviews and, and being part of the society and, Thank you so much for being a big part of my life and, and this uh, time together. So lo I love collabing with you. And um, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you all again, everybody, and uh, for being with us on the Pirate Monk Podcast. We love you. Arg. The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes. 
and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com.